Good evening, church. My name is Sean, and I'll be reading for us today's reading from Job chapter 3, verse 1 to 26. It reads as follows. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. And Job said, Let the day perish on which I was born, and the night that said, A man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it. No light shine upon it. Let gloom and the deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night... Let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Levethian, let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light, but have none nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. Why did I not die at birth, come out from the womb and expire? Why did the knees receive me? Or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept, then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves, or with princes who had gold, who filled their houses with silver, or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaker. Taskmaster, the small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave? Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden? Whom God has hidden, for my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing that I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, church. Um, those are heavy words, aren't they? Um, that Job feels. Um, and those are words that um, perhaps some of us have felt. Um, it's heavy that he says, I'm going through so much. Why was I even born? Why was I not a stillborn at birth? Um, <laughs> we're searching for death. This person is searching for death as if it were a treasure. So this is somebody who wants to, to die because of suffering. And that's the book of Job. It, it is about suffering. It is about that very thing that we all encounter. And it's about keeping faith um, in the suffering. It is about thinking about God differently when we go through difficult moments. Uh, so that's where we're going to be for this evening. Uh, please keep your Bibles open to chapter 3. Uh, we're not going to spend much time in chapter 3, but we're going to um, go around and see some of the speeches uh, that Job um, has throughout um, the book. Uh, so we've been doing the series for the last um, two weeks. Uh, it's a five-part series. Uh, I'm sure you're wondering, we're only in chapter 3. Um, how is it going to be uh, five, um, five part? Basically, uh, what happens in the middle of a book uh, is that the friends of Job, uh, there's different speeches uh, that, they, uh, that they do uh, in poetic form that try to make sense of the, the, the trouble that Job finds himself in. Uh, so really, chapters 1 and 2 set the scene for us. Chapters, um, the chapters 4 in the middle up until about 
38 basically all say the same thing. It makes for great reading, but not for great preaching, because I'll be saying the same thing over and over and over again. Uh, So this evening we are in week three, and just to recap you, if you're joining us for the very first time, by the way, welcome if you're joining us for the very first time. My name is David, I'm one of the pastors here at uh, at Christchurch Midrand, and it's my privilege to to open God's word for us this evening. For the last two weeks, uh, week one, we looked at faith, the true faith is coming to God to get God, um, and not to get from God. Uh, faith is coming to God as uh, the Satan in chapter 1 verse 9 asks God, does Job serve you for nothing? Does he serve you not expecting anything, uh, anything in return? So true faith we saw is coming to God for the sake of God and not because we want stuff from God. Uh, we don't give our money to uh, the work of the Lord. We don't come to church Uh, We don't do good stuff so that God can be good in return. No, faith, uh, true faith is coming to God to get God. Week two, we saw that Christian faith often flourishes in times when we don't have the answers. Uh, Contrary to our thinking, very often we think that maybe if I can just understand what I'm going through, then and only then will I have stronger faith in God. But biblical faith, um, what, um, what it's all about, um, is not so much <laughs> trusting God in the answers. In fact, trusting God uh, happens and flourishes in moments when we don't have the answer. So that was week one and week two. I'm going to pray for us. I'm going to ask our gentlemen to put the this thing here, the board, because I can see this side of the room is not going to see uh, what's happening. So um, as I pray, can we please uh, pass, move the drums and then put the, um, the board on the, on the stage. Please bow your heads as I lead us in prayer. Father, we thank you so much for this, your word, um, that across the centuries you seem to understand all that humans go through, which is a joy, Lord. Uh, Very often we don't even see you as that. We don't see you as a very wise God uh, who stood the test of time, whose love is everlasting. And so this evening I pray that your wisdom, your ancient wisdom, would come alive for our time today. That as we hear your word, wherever we may find ourselves, I pray that God, you would speak to us. May I become less and may you increase. I pray that we would see the face of Christ through the scriptures. In Jesus' name we ask. Amen. Um, how many of you remember uh, May 19, 19th of May 2014? Uh, some of you were about 14 years old or so. Um, you may not, not remember. I didn't even remember. Um, but let me give you a clue. Um, of what happened around that time. Keyword Nkanza. Another word, pay back the money. Um, I wonder if you remember that. Um, so on the 19th of May 2014, uh, Advocate Tulima Donzela, as the public protector, presented a document called Secure in Comfort. And as you can tell, the, the title is quite sarcastic. Uh, it was a report given on the state capture, not, not the state capture, but on the presidential home uh, that uh, was built in, in Kandla. Uh, and in the report, it was found out uh, that power and influence were used to the advantage of uh, the then president. He was in power. Uh, the job of the one in power is to serve the people and to e- eliminate poverty in our country. Uh, but as the statement says, secure in comfort, that the security update upgrades were not security upgrades. Um, it was just luxurious uh, upgrades. Um, I still remember, how many of you remember this picture that's going to come up of the guys trying to demonstrate uh, the, that the pool uh, was actually for uh, fire hydration purposes. It wasn't just a pool, it's a security feature in the home. Uh, so it was um, uh, that advocate to Lima Donzella went to investigate and kept the president um, to account for what he, 
what he had done, pay back the money that was the, the final verdict of the whole investigation. It was such a great moment in our country, wasn't it? Where we saw the institutions uh, that, uh, that protected democracy in our country, that the most powerful men in our country would be kept accountable by somebody who he had appointed. Um, and so we saw uh, such a, a great um, country that we, we live in. Uh, we saw that our longing for, as people, is for those in power to be kept accountable. Don't you find it joyful when somebody who's perhaps corrupt, who is in power, is kept accountable? We love that. We love that. And as I've said for the last two weeks, if you are a follower of Jesus and if you are honest, very often in our lives, we feel like God needs somebody to keep him accountable. The most powerful being that there is, sometimes he needs somebody to keep him in check. Because very often we don't agree with some of the things that happen in our lives. Or as we look at our country, as we look at the suffering in our country, uh, as we look at the brokenness in our society, we often wonder if God sees everything that's happening. If he's in charge, then who's ceasing uh, his superior uh, for him to get to do the job that he's meant to do? We feel like that, don't we? We feel like that sometimes, that if there was a heavenly Tulima Donzella who would keep God accountable, we would be, we'd be happy. Um, somebody to prove our innocence, uh, somebody to plead our case and say, God, you are unfair to me. Have you felt like that before? God, you, you're unfair. And so that's the sentiment that Job has after he is the most as we pre presented in chapter 1, the most righteous human uh, who suffers the most horrific um, fate. Uh, chapter 1 introduces us to him, and then chapters 3 onwards, we get the response that Job feels as he goes through this difficulty. Uh, if you still have your Bibles open, please turn with me to chapter 9. As we see Job saying, can I please have somebody who's going to plead my case before God? Can I have an external party to come audit God? Because I don't think that he has dealt with me well. Have a look at chapter 9, verse 32. For he is not man as I am. Speaking of God, this is Job speaking, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. So he's saying, I can't take this uh, God to trial because he's not man. He is God after all. There is no arbiter between us who may lay his hand on both of us. Let him take his rod away from me and let not dread of him terrify me. Verse 35, then I will speak without fear of him for I'm not so, for I'm not so in myself. Job is basically saying if this God exists, if he was man, then him and I would go outside and deal with this as men because I don't know why I'm going through the things I'm going through. Having served him, having loved him, having done all the sacrifices that I've done, why is it that he's dealt me a heavy hand? Uh, surely this is unfair. Surely there should be somebody to speak on behalf of me. And since he's big and he's God, I cannot even stand before him and take him toe to toe. This is unfair. Is there a heavenly Tulima Donzella to come plead my case. Turn over to chapter 10 as we see and hear uh, something of a similar cry that Job has concerning his suffering. Have you eyes of flesh? Do you see as man sees? God, are you seeing things from my perspective? Because if you did, you would not continue to afflict me. Because if you did, you'd rescue me from these things that I'm going through. Verse 5, are your days are your days as the days of men, or your years as, uh, as a man's years, that you seek out my iniquity and search for my sin, although you know that I'm not guilty, and there is no one to deliver, to deliver out of your hand? There's nobody to deliver me from the hand of this God. He's powerful, he's supreme, he answers to nobody, and that's just unfair given what I'm going through. Now I know many of us 
sometimes go through times where we feel like that, that God is unfair. If it is that he's punishing me for my sin, what is, what is it? What sin did I commit? Um, surely if we were to go to court and argue my case, I would come out free. I would come out as the one who is unfairly treated. In other words, God is an unstoppable bully who does as he pleases. That's unfair, isn't it? That's unfair to live in a world uh, of a God who is, not, um, who is not kept accountable. And he's asking these things, and he's saying these things as a believer, as somebody who trusts in God. And very often we feel those things as believers, and it sounds like you're not spiritual, right? Imagine if you had Bible study, and you were going through difficulties, and you were to say some of these things Job is saying. You'd sound like you are, a, you are faithless. You'll sound like you're a pagan, isn't it? That you don't believe in God. Yet Job says these things, um, and many of us feel these things uh, as we go through difficulties. But there are those who feel these things, that God is not just. And there are those um, who are believers, but there are those who go through the same feelings and reach the conclusion that it must be that God does not exist. If he's this kind of bully, and therefore it means he, he doesn't, um, we shouldn't, I think we should cancel somebody like that. Um, in fact, in uh, his book called The God Delusion, Richard Dawkins uh, says exactly this. He contrasts the God of the Old Testament and the God of the New Testament. And he says, well, the God of the Old Testament uh, is, is just an unfair bully. This is his words. This are his words. He says that the God of the Old Testament is arguably the most unpleasant character in all fiction. Notice he says that it's fiction, the God of the Old Testament, jealous and proud of it, a petty, unjust, unforgiving, control freak, a vindictive, bloodthirsty, ethnic cleanser, a misogynist, homophobic, racist, uh, because I went to a, private, to a public school, I don't know how to say that word, but it means uh, one who kills babies, uh, genocidal, that other words, megalomaniac, capriciously malevolent bully. Uh, he's basically an impulsive bully who's full of himself, who kills babies, hates gays, hates, hates women. Um, he's power hungry and he does what he pleases with no accountability whatsoever. Where's the advocate to Lima Donzella to keep a kind of, this kind of God in check, uh, to come audit God on our behalf? This is what Job felt as a believer. This is what Dawkins says as an unbeliever. He cannot comprehend worshiping a God who does as he pleases. Therefore, he reaches a conclusion that I cannot and we cannot um, have that kind of God. He's at best, fictional, and if he is fictional, then this is probably the worst fiction ever written. Uh, so this God, or at least the way we think about God, uh, can make us reach uh, different conclusions. Perhaps you have been there where you are on the verge of counseling God because you feel like he is a bully. Now, let me say, I, if, if, if that's what you feel, I applaud you for continuing, for coming to church, for listening in uh, and giving God uh, one more chance. But one thing that I need to say to you is that this evening, uh, or even the book of Job, does not try to defend God. So I'm not going to give a defense for God against docking. Um, it doesn't try to defend God, nor does it try to give us the answers. So I'm not going to give the answers or try to defend God. But one of the things I'll say is that you are not alone as you ask those questions. As you can see, Job was struggling and grappling with those. Jump over to chapter 13, verses 3. Chapter 13, listen to that same language again and again. But I would speak to the Almighty and I desire to argue my case with God. Jump over to verse 18, the same cry. Behold, I prepare my case, and know I shall be right. 
verse 23, how many are my iniquities and my sins? Make me known my transgressions and my sins. What have I done wrong, Lord, to deserve this? What have I done? I want to argue my case before you. I want to have somebody above you. Unto you, you know those people at the shops? <laughs> I can't believe the state of this thing. Go call your manager to come sort it out. That's what Job feels. That's what we often feel. And under getting all of that, behind all of that thinking, is this idea that we saw in week one, the retribution principle. It's this idea that says you reap what you sow. It is this idea that says obedience to God is tied up with our experience of pain and suffering. It is this idea that says that the righteous prosper, as in the case in chapter 1 that we saw, and the wicked or the wicked suffer. Now we're going to see next week that somehow parts of the Bible teach this principle, uh, but sometimes that is not always the case. Sometimes in God's wisdom, things don't pan out that way. It's not always that the weakest, the righteous prosper and the wicked suffer. That's not always the case. But when you feel like you want to take God to court, behind all of that, under getting all of that, is your innocence. It is the fact that you served him. I've served Church, in church, I've been a Bible study leader for 20 years. God, you're going to strike me with cancer. Can't you protect me from that? And so the retribution principle is at the heart of these feelings that we, uh, that we have. Um, if we scratch God's back, somebody said in a meeting the other day, they said that obviously I don't believe that I do stuff for God so that he can in turn bless me. None of us would say that we come to church <laughs> expecting that God will serve us, is it? Like, that's not why we come to church. We're not saying if we scratch God's back, he must scratch our back. But I mean, if we scratch your back, God, <laughs> you need to scratch our, our back. In our heart of hearts, we operate in that principle. Although we don't think that we believe it, we're not convinced that we believe it, Kate Bola says in every single one of us, there is a tiny bit of prosperity gospel. In every one of us, there's a tiny bit of a belief that there's a connection between our obedience and our service to God and His blessing upon our lives. But perhaps there's a better way to think about God, especially as we look at Job. He presents to us a better way, and we're going to look at um, that better way in three different um, parts. Number one, the formula, uh, the formula, the formula that we all have, um, the formula that we all have that helps us make sense of our world, that helps us make sense of suffering. Uh, number two, the feelings, the feelings particularly when that formula doesn't seem to add up. And then number three, I had to find another F uh, and say facts. Um, the facts, or rather the truth that we need to tend to, the facts that we need to tend to about God that will change the way we think about God and faith in our moments of suffering. Remember, Job doesn't give us the answer to our suffering, but it helps us to think about God as we suffer. So the formula, the feelings, and the facts. And so we are going to um, start off with the, um, the formula. Now, this is the formula that undergirds our thinking. So I hope you can all see the board here behind me. Uh, now, in the book of Job, there is a formula that every character uh, goes to when they try to make uh, sense of Job's suffering. On the one hand, you have Job, who's looking at his own life and saying, I believe, I believe that God blesses those who serve him, but I serve them, and I know, I'm, I know I'm, I'm, I'm innocent. Therefore, God has to be unjust. This is why he says, I need to take him to court. On the other hand, you have his three friends, Elipaz, uh, Zophar, and Bildad, 
who says, Job, man, we are here for you. We see your trouble. We see the things that you're going through. But are you sure you have not sinned? Are you sure there's no sin in your life that God is trying to purge from you? And three times, three different friends speak, and every time he responds to them and says, No, I haven't sinned. Have you sinned? No. Have you sinned? One, two, three. And then we, got, we get God's answer at the end. But there's another character before God answers called Elihu in chapter 28 who brings a different perspective. And so let me draw it for us. And it's also after I draw, going to come up on the screen. And as we think about it, it's a triangle. Uh, it's a formula. Many of you are getting nervous because you hear triangle and formulas and you think you have <laughs> math lit. We're not doing that, ne? Uh. <laughs> I got a D in math. So on the top we have God's justice. If you're listening in on the internet, on, online, just think of a triangle. On the top of the triangle, we have God's justice. And on the bottom here, we have a retributive principle. If you OCD, uh, sorry for that. So the retributive principle, and then we have Job's innocent on the, on the one corner. And this is the formula that all the different characters um, go to to try to understand God and suffering and the suffering of Job. Uh, so Job obviously looks at this triangle uh, because when you suffer, you can't hold on to, if you have this as your formula, you can't hold on to all three of them. Okay? So if God is just and he blesses those who are faithful and Job is innocent, that doesn't make sense, right? We've got to give up something. Either he's not just, or this principle doesn't work, or Job is not innocent. Job obviously camps here. Job, so this is Job saying throughout the book, I'm innocent. This is where I stand. I haven't done anything to upset God. And I know that this principle works. I know that God, in my world, ancient Near Eastern thinking, God blessed those who worked hard for him. So I know this thing. I know this thing, that the retributive principle. So what's the problem? What am I going to give up? I'm going to give up the justice of God. I'm going to believe that God is not just in my life. How many of us think that way, believe that way, that I've served you, Lord. I know I'm not the best of Christians, but I haven't done anything to upset you. You must be an unfair, malevolent bully. The friends obviously camp here. They camp by the retributive principle. God blesses those who are faithful. If you just serve God, if you have enough faith, Amen, Bazalwani. God is going to bless you beyond your greatest measure. If you just give 10% of your money, amen, God is going to wait and see what he's going to do in your life. Um, have you ever seen those, um, those adverts? Um, those, uh, what channel is it? TBN? Um, that believes this kind of thing. That if you do something, if you take a step of faith, God is going to look favorably upon you. So they look at this. They camp here and they then ask us themselves, what are we going to give up to understand Job's suffering? It cannot be that God is unjust. Surely God is not unjust. Theologically speaking, that's blasphemy to speak of a God who's unjust. Therefore, Job must be guilty. We have to give up his innocence. Okay? And then you have Elihu, on the other hand, who comes here and says, God is just. God is just. And we obviously believe in this principle. But we also believe 
the job is innocent. Be on your side, Job. So what are we going to give up? And Elihu redefines this principle. He says, well, maybe God, maybe God looked into your life. There was no sin in your life. But perhaps the retributive principle, this principle that he blesses those who are faithful and uh, basically punishes those who are faithless, perhaps this principle doesn't have to do with past sins that you've committed. Maybe God looked at your life and foresaw that you are going to sin and now he's punishing you for that. Because he is just, he does bless those who serve him, but we're on your side as well. Uh, Job, you are innocent. So maybe, maybe God is doing that, is um, making you go through that because of sins that you're going to commit. And so throughout Job's speeches, which is what we've been looking at, Job keeps on saying, that man is unfair to him, and I want my day in court. I want him to come answer for all that he's done uh, to my life. Jump to chapter 7, verses 20 to 21. Listen again to this over and over again. What sin have I committed? If I sin, what do I do to you, you watcher of mankind? You see everything that happens in this world. You watch all the activities of men. If I have sinned, what is it that I've done? Why have you made your mark? Why have I become, why have you made me your mark? And in other um, uh, parts of the speech, he uses this picture of God drawing his arrow and making him the target of his arrow. Why have you done that to me? Why do you not pardon my transgression and take away my iniquity? For now I shall lie in the earth. You will seek me. But, you, but I shall not be. In the life of Job, he feels that God is unjust. He's giving up the top end of the triangle, and he wants to sit there and come there because he knows he's innocent. And so that is a very helpful formula that the book uses, and it goes back and forth in trying to help us think about God in suffering. In the life of Job, he dwells in his innocence. In our lives, we also use this formula. I wonder if you ever <laughs> think about the questions that we, or rather the explanation that we give to what are suffering. Perhaps you, your wife has had a miscarriage and you say, well, man, maybe he's punishing me for the abortion I caused in high school. Where are you in that triangle? You're giving up the innocence um, because God, God is just. He must be punished. I must have done something wrong. Company goes under. You are retrenched. Sure, maybe, maybe he's purging away my greed, the greed that I have in my life. Perhaps God is trying to teach me through this retrenchment that I'm just a greedy human. You are somewhere in this formula, in trying to understand. And this formula gives us comfort, isn't it? Because if I'm going through stuff and I don't have the answers, maybe this can help me understand what I'm going through. Perhaps your ghosts from your childhood are haunting you. You're married and suddenly cannot. You struggle with intimacy because you are abused as a baby. And you just think to yourself, God, why did you allow me to go through that? That was just unfair. I was innocent. Where are you in that? you letting go of the justice of God. Because God cannot be just and allow such suffering um, for me to go through that suffering. You lost your dad in third year and there's no one to cover your fees. God, this is unfair. This is unfair. This is, these are the formulas that we use to try to answer um, these things. That God is purging us um, of our sin. Well, maybe God is not trying to teach you anything. Maybe there is no sin in your life. Very often Christians would say and use this um, silver lining theology that perhaps there's a silver lining. If you just 
looked at your suffering, maybe God is doing some good in that. The silver lining theology, well, maybe God is not trying to do something through that. Maybe there's no lesson to learn from that. What do we say as Christians? (laughs) He never gives us more than we can bear. But very often it does feel like the load is unbearable, doesn't it? And in those moments, um, we have to be honest with God. That the formula doesn't add up. This is unbearable. And when the formula doesn't add up, we develop feelings of bitterness and despair. And this is what we see in the life of Job. Although he doesn't curse God to his face, although he doesn't turn away from his faith, he develops feelings of despair, like giving up on God and wanting to die, as we saw in chapter 3. I'm not going to go into chapter 3 again, because that's the reality for, 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 for some people, that you just feel like, why, did you, why don't you just haste my death? Because I can't look at you in the face and challenge you, yet I'm going through these difficult things. Chapter 3 Verse 11 and 16, I'm not going to explain these verses. Just read them and ask yourself, have I ever felt this? Have a look at chapter 3, verse 11. Why did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why was I not a stillborn? Have a look at verse 16. Or why was I not a hidden stillborn as infants who never see the light? So this is somebody who's in despair. Chapter 7, he says it outward. Chapter 7, verse 16 to 19, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone, for my days are but a a breath. What is man that you make so much of him, and you set your heart on him, visit him every morning, and test him every moment? How long will you not look away from me, nor leave me alone till I swallow my spit? How long, oh Lord, I loathe my life. <laughs> this is dark, isn't it? And you guys are looking at me I, like you're feeling the weight of this thing. It is dark. In the 1998 movie, Patch Adams, um, it's, a real, it's a real story about a, an American doctor who was trying to uh, run a non-profit organization that helped psychiatric patients and it introduced new methods. And so he was busy doing his thing. And one of the things that happened is that he fell in love with this lady uh, during who was helping out at the psych- psychiatric clinic. And then in a tragic turn of events, this lady was killed by one of the patients. So you can imagine the fury that this guy had, the feelings of bitterness and despair. And in fact, he's on the verge of the hill in this uh, famous uh, scene. So he's on the verge of the hill and he's having this conversation of despair and bitterness uh, with God uh, and he wants to take his life. He says, answer me. Tell me what you are doing. Okay, let's look at the logic. You create man. Man suffers enormous amounts of pain. Man dies. Hey, maybe you should have had more few, few more brainstorming sessions Prior to creation, he says, you rested on the seventh day. Maybe you should have spent that on compassion. And then he says, I'm going to do it. And turns away, says, you're not even worth it. Feelings of despair and bitterness that this man feels because of his situation. Trying to do good and then events of tragedy before you. How many of us feel this? These feelings of despair, of losing hope in God, losing hope in... And like, why do I need to be a Christian if this is going to be the cause of my life? So we have our formulas, and when they undergetting those formulas is the retribution principle. Undergetting these formulas is us wanting to keep God accountable, um, for somebody to speak on our behalf, um, to question what he's doing. In our world, when those formulas don't add up, they leave us with bitterness and despair. 
Now we need to, in those moments, turn to the facts. We need to turn to the truth of Scripture that helps us to rethink God and help us, helps us to rethink faith in God in times where we go through difficulties. And here's the fact. <laughs> we don't know much, and the book of Job tells us we don't know much. But one thing for sure that it tells us is that our experience of suffering is not a measure of our faithfulness or an obedience to God. Or to put it in other ways, pain is not the evidence that God is punishing us for our lack of faith, um, which means we need to perhaps come up with a different way to think about God. Tim Keller says this about pain and suffering, that Christianity does not provide the reason for each experience of pain. Sometimes suffering does have an explanation. But sometimes there are no reasons. Uh, Christianity doesn't provide the reason for each experience of pain, but it does provide deep resources for actually facing suffering with hope and courage rather than bitterness and despair. The Christian story has deep resources to help us think about God in our suffering. Not giving us the answers, not defending God, but it points us to a God who helps us in our suffering. The Christian story speaks of a God who took on human flesh. A God who came to reveal to us how the world actually works. Um, and that, that person is Jesus. Jesus came into our world, a world of suffering and pain. And through Jesus, we see God's greatest wisdom in the way he lived, the things he taught, his death on the cross, uh, which we're going to get to. But today we just want to look at his life and his teaching as an embodiment of the wisdom of God. Uh, if you have your Bible still, please turn with me to John chapter 9 as you look at uh, the wisdom of God at play in dealing with the answer, or rather not the answer, the way of thinking about God and what he's doing in our world when we suffer. John chapter 9, um, this is the disciples speaking to God, asking him a very difficult question regarding suffering. It's about a man who's born blind. Have a look at verse 1 to 3. And as he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, listen to the answer. It was not that this man sinned or his penance, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. Where <laughs> The disciples, where are they operating from in this triangle? You can talk to me now. Was it? Uh, somebody speak. <laughs> Where are they operating from? There, here's a man born blind. What's the problem? Innocence. So he's, he, he sinned. Or somebody sinned. But since he was born blind, was it him? Or was it his parents' sin that he would be born this way? What answer does Jesus give to that? He goes outside of this circle, and he points them to a God who is at work. He points them to the real purposes of God, uh, and throughout his life, this is what Jesus uh, does. He doesn't explain the reason for this man's blindness. He doesn't subscribe to the formula, but he points them to the character of a great God, a God who is not vindictive, who, doesn't, who looks at human suffering with eyes filled with tears. We saw last week that Jesus cried Jesus wept. That is God for us. God who comes into our world and looks at our suffering and pain with eyes filled with tears. He has compassion on us. He's not a vindictive God who's unjust to us. Uh, he's a God who meets us and extends his hands uh, to us in the midst of our suffering. That's the character of the God we encounter in uh, all of the Bible, and maybe, just maybe as Christians, 
Sometimes that's enough for us in our suffering. That we don't have the answers, the formula doesn't work, but we have a God who is supreme. We have a God who is caring and compassionate. God who is trustworthy, a God who understands what we are going through. And can I just say that it's, it is difficult to be middle class, which we all are, and comprehend that. Let me explain what I mean by that. We are the top 10% of the country. We are smart, most of us. <laughs> uh, smart, influential, we healthy, hardworking, make things happen kind of people. Um, if we don't get things done, we hire somebody to get those things done. If we don't have the answers, then we hire somebody to have the answers. So we have power, influence, and control. A power to make things happen, to drive results, to escalate the thing. If something is not done, CC the manager and the general manager, somebody has to account. Right? That's our thinking. Very good corporate thinking. Nothing wrong with that. Uh, we have influence and networks to make stuff happen. If you're stuck somewhere, it's like, who do you know? Or maybe you ask a friend, like, do you know anyone who's in my home affairs? Because, <laughs> like, I'm, I'm battling to, to get um, my applications through. Do you know somebody? We have so much control of our lives, the ability to prolong our lives. We exercise. How many of you are wearing smartwatches? Um, <laughs> you exercise, eat healthy to prolong our lives. We part of medical aids that hire these guys who are so smart, they call them actual scientists. These guys are so smart that they can predict your life. They can look at your family history, um, and they can look at your lifestyle and be like, oh, 65, that guy is gone. <laughs> so they, and they can predict it with a certain level of accuracy. So that's the kind of world that we live in where we have some of the world's best medical systems, I just think about that and then think about God. Think about how unsatisfactory it is to hear that God loves us and God is with us in our pain. Think about how unsatisfactory it is to say that there's nothing we can do about it. Because you and I live and operate in a world where we have power, control, influence, all of those things, we struggle to understand the limitations of being human and going through suffering. That's something we can't get our heads around. We struggle to understand mystery and surrender. That there's just certain things that are above our pay grade. We just cannot understand certain things. Only God knows. And another thing that we struggle with is coming to grips with the fact that we cannot perform our way to a better life. We cannot perform our way to avoiding suffering. Yes, you can exercise and be healthy. That is a good thing. But then end up with pancreatic cancer. That's just a possibility. Or die in an accident. That is the reality that we live in. And so when the Bible says, and when we see the character of God in the Bible, the God who holds our hands in suffering, we struggle to believe that that's enough. That is enough sometimes in our suffering. Amen. I'm going to end it off with um, these words by Kate Bola, that interesting uh, theologian who I sometimes agree with, sometimes I don't agree with her. But she is someone who, who grapples with pain. And that's why I like her, because she's very honest. Um, Tim Keller says <laughs> that he wrote a book on suffering before he was diagnosed with pancreatic cancer. And there's just a huge difference between those things. Like there's just a huge difference in his head about how he's thinking about God. You can read and write a book on suffering. That's very powerful. But unless you encounter it, there's just certain things that you, certain experiences of God that you just don't know. Kate Bola goes through suffering, has studied the prosperity movement, 
has seen that that prosperity movement is in the hearts of many of us, is somebody who's grappling with God, and she looks at the culture that she lives in, and this is what she says. She speaks of the American culture, but I think it's so relevant to our culture as well. She says, what, if, what would it mean for Christians to give up that little piece of the American dream, I think we can say the Jobek dream, that says you are limitless. Everything is not possible, she says. The mighty kingdom of God is not here. What if rich did not mean wealthy and whole did not, mean, did not have to mean healed? What if the people of the gospel, what, what if being people of the gospel meant that we are simply people with good news? God is here. We are loved. It is enough. What if we were to believe those words this evening? That God is here, we are loved, and that's enough. Let me pray for us. God, you are indeed here. God, we are also honest in, in saying that sometimes we don't believe that. Sometimes it feels like you are far from us, far removed from our pain and our suffering. Father, I pray for somebody this evening who's coming and maybe hearing those words and perhaps they are heavy. Pray that you would extend your hand uh, towards them, uh, to assure them that you are there, to assure them also through Christian community that you are there, uh, to assure them of your great love uh, that you have for them. I pray, Lord, that uh, we would all uh, come to realize that often we're not going to have the answers. Not all of us are going through suffering, but I pray, Father, um, because as we live long enough, we will experience that suffering, that we would think differently about you in that suffering, that you would point us to your wisdom and help us to realize that you are in charge, you love us, and that you feel with us the pain. And Lord, may we find comfort in that. May we find comfort in the Lord Jesus uh, who wept at the sight of death, even though he knew that he would raise a man up to life. We pray, Father, that you would remind us of that, that even you took on human flesh and wept. And I pray that you'd give us the freedom to have questions, have doubts, but I pray that you'd overcome our doubts and that we would have faith as we go through whatever it is that we're going through. So please be with us this evening. Uh, thank you as we come to the Lord's table as well. I pray that you would remind us of the sacrifice of Jesus who put an end to suffering through his own suffering on the cross. Amen.